Welcome to the Red Blue Newsletter audio cast for the June 2nd newsletter. I'm your co-host Prescott. And I'm Olaf. Let's jump into what we covered this week. So first of all, we have a second edition of the Autos Analyst Series podcast coming out. This one with Itai McKelly, who leads auto coverage at City. Definitely check that one out. Won't jump too much into it because you can listen to that one yourself. You can find the newsletter and the podcast at news.red.blue. That's news.red.blue. Okay, so we start out by covering 10-minute delivery, quick commerce, Q-commerce, if you want to sound cool. There's been like a complete meltdown in the space. <laughs> it's been pretty wild. Yeah, so if you don't know what quick commerce is, it's Gorillas, it's GoPuff, it's Getir, Getir. it's Zap, all, all, Fridge it, No More, Joker. It's companies, companies advertising like crazy on billboards or at soccer games like the Manchester United game we went to where there were just Getir ads everywhere. I feel like there's a lot of startup schadenfreude going on because they've raised literally billions of dollars over the last two years. And suddenly there's maybe altogether thousands of layoffs. That's a very bad sign for the space. I think there's been a general sense in the market for a while that there's been a disconnect between business models and profitability and companies' ability to raise significant sums of money. And the quick commerce space has been a bellwether for that disconnect. And now as things crash down to reality, I think that's where the schadenfreude that you're pointing to is maybe coming from. Just to quantify it, companies like Getir, which just raised a huge amount of money at a multi-billion dollar valuation, almost immediately after that laid off 14% of their stock. Zap, a big player in the space, laid off 10%. Gorillas, which is like the big European player, fired half of their employees in their Berlin headquarters. So the real sense of crisis in the industry, there is a sense that these companies are hitting a wall. And I think that a lot of people have looked at what's happened here with the, the layoffs and have just been like, of course, these companies were going nowhere. People are asking, like, was there ever a point? I think everyone's looking at this being like, wow, I have no idea how you can make 10 minute delivery profitable. The whole thing was a sham. You and I spent a lot of time thinking about quick commerce because before the enormous gorillas round, we, we were in Berlin kind of looking at delivery and, and quick commerce back in 2020. I mean, it's, it's not being fair to the companies to say that there truly was no point. The bull case really revolves around the fact that grocery is not as bad of a business as people think. Like everyone assumes grocery is razor thin margins. So how could you possibly make more money by subsidizing delivery on top of that? These companies basically are like building grocery stores in neighborhoods, except you just can't shop in them. They just deliver stuff to you. There are waves of delivery companies, right? You had years ago, you had the Grubhubs, which were really just listing sites where if you were a restaurant that offered delivery people could find you on Grubhub. But then you had this like second wave of delivery companies come out where like Uber Eats, Uber actually deployed its own network of delivery people to deliver your food for you to the customer. And now these companies, Gorillas, Getty, Quick Commerce, they're actually building the stores and they are holding grocery inventory and then they're delivering it for you. So they're, they're a much more capital intensive business, which is why they've had to raise so much money so fast. If they're more capital intensive, doesn't that mean they also can capture more margin? A lot of things you sell, alcohol, fresh produce, etc., they actually have good margins. The problem is you have to get people coming to your store repeatedly. Once you habituate somebody to say, hey, I need groceries, I'm just going to go down to the street to the store I always go to, suddenly you have something really valuable, which is that person spends an hour of their week in person in your store. You can advertise to them and A lot of people don't think about this, but a quarter to a third 
of the revenue that CPG companies make, like people that make cereals and boxed goods, et cetera, 25 to 30% of that revenue gets recycled back into advertising. And a lot of it is that those cereal companies or those alcohol companies are actually paying for my store to place the stuff at eye level. So if you're Walmart, you make money by keeping people's brands at eye level as somebody walks through the store. And that's really high margin revenue. Just to contextualize that, when you're on Instagram, even if Instagram pushes you an ad, it's very hard for you to buy that thing. Even if you do buy it like digitally, you're waiting days for the delivery to happen. When you're in a store, literally everything is something that you can pick up, go to the register and check out. And that makes the value of this advertising significantly higher because it's immediately actionable. So that's, I think that was the, the point they were trying to go after. So these quick commerce companies basically, in my view, are trying to create a new habituated consumer behavior, being the default place to shop when you have kind of an everyday convenience need. And they don't have to necessarily make money on delivery because you know, Amazon is Amazon makes $30 billion of ad revenue, which is super high margin. So, And Instacart makes half a billion dollars of ad revenue. So all you need to do is just almost break even with your core business. As long as that core business gets people coming back again and again, you can start serving them ads. And that can be how you go from maybe just not quite breaking even to doing quite well. Isn't the point of quick commerce, instant delivery to sell you a convenience? And isn't that enough to be something that you can make money off? But convenience stores don't make their money through advertising. They make money just from selling the goods, from the margin on the goods. You don't have to go to the supermarket. You don't have to get into your car in that they're selling you convenience. And my theory on this is that they're selling you a kind of a luxury good. You're basically saying it's a bad business because their costs are so high. They're going to recover it ultimately by being a default, and then they're going to get advertising revenue to cover up the slack. But you can basically have a loss-making business that bridges that gap just with ads. Okay, I don't think our arguments are incompatible. I'm saying that they're maybe never going to make money on the convenience delivery, but they're going to make it up in ads. You're saying that they should just get people to pay a little bit more for the convenience. Like It is a ridiculous level of convenience. Why do I need a banana in 10 minutes, have somebody deliver it to me, et cetera? Whatever the case is, whether their business will break even with or without ads, or they need ads to get them above and, and be profitable. The problem that I find as a consumer is they don't have what I need when I actually go to them. And the good thing about Amazon is I go there and almost always it will have what I need. Now there's quality issues, et cetera. But with GoPuff in particular, I feel like I go there all the time and the inventory is just not there, which has killed it for me because I no longer go there all the time. I used to open it up if I needed something quickly. But without their inventory, like with GoPuff, I've just stopped opening the app. And I think that's really what's going to kill them because they can't keep advertising and begging people to go to the app and then people get there and there's not what they need. I think what's going to happen is that Walmart or Amazon or any of the e-commerce players, they're going to start rolling these players up and everyone's going to be like, why would they buy these companies that never make any money? And the point is, it's like rotisserie chicken. <laughs> you don't need to make money on the chicken, but the 15 minute delivery or the 10 minute delivery is a feature that itself may never actually make money, but it could be an important enough reassurance to people to stay in the Walmart plus bundle or stay in the Amazon Prime bundle. Honestly, I, I'm not a Walmart Plus subscriber, but if Walmart had GoPuff, maybe I would be a Walmart Plus subscriber just because- We're not the right demographic right now. But yeah, I, I think remember when Amazon acquired Whole Foods and it said these ripples 
because everybody was like, why would Amazon do this? It's not like adjacent or they're going to build warehouses there. But I think it just makes a lot of sense to expand the Prime bundle. And Walmart Plus is basically trying to recreate that um, and to have better offerings. And when you have scale, the big challenge in retail, I think, in general, is just having scale. It's what reduces costs fundamentally and what allows you to be a brand that can more cheaply reach customers. Yeah, scale is super important. Once you get someone in the store, you can do a lot. You can advertise to them. You could sell them things that make you a lot of money. But the key is they just have to have a reason to come and keep coming. Okay, Olaf, you've been following the battery market and that's been heating up. Well, you don't want batteries to heat up too much because then they explode. But it seems like things are moving in the wrong direction in terms of battery pricing. And that's new. That's new. Battery costs have declined 2014 around $600 per kilowatt hour. Everybody was hoping they'd go below 100. And as they've gotten closer to 100, they've turned around and started going up. And the real reason for this is raw materials, the stuff that goes into making the battery, and in particular, lithium. Yeah, I feel like we're hearing all these factories being started all over the world to make batteries, but that's not solving the problem you're pointing out, is it? I think it's creating the problem in that the more demand you have in the market, uh, the more you need supply. And so there are three metals that are critical for most batteries, lithium, cobalt, and nickel. And all of them have complicated mining situations that make it difficult to extract enough of them to meet demand. So the important thing to note here is this isn't like a new problem. It's not like nobody expected it. And it's not like it hasn't been meaningful investment into bringing out enough lithium and, and these other metals in order to make batteries. It's just that it's really hard to scale up lithium mining at any meaningful rate because most of the lithium in the world is located in, in South America around uh, Chile and Argentina. When you create a, a lithium mine, it takes 10 years to establish. And then even the brine extraction, they like create the pump out lithium and, and create a brine. And then it takes several years, months at least, for this brine to congeal into a format that can profitably have the lithium extracted. So there's a big delay in how quickly you can scale up mining and how quickly you can get that lithium into new batteries. And the background here is that electric vehicle growth has been really spectacular, especially in China and also in Europe, America a little bit less. And that is where the demand side is really kicking in and when the supply side is struggling to keep up. Okay, that seems like a big problem because everyone's building these factories all these cars are now being planned and suddenly the mineral prices tick up. Is this an existential problem? What are people doing to get around this? Well, Elon Musk says he's going to start mining lithium himself because the prices are too unacceptably high. I think, I don't think this is going to necessarily stop the growth in electric vehicle sales. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. The first reason is it's creating a slight uptick in overall battery prices, but the scaling of the technology is also finding ways to create efficiencies. And tied to that first reason is a second sub-point, which is that batteries are becoming much more energy dense over time. is working on a battery that is two and a half times more dense that they're looking to manufacture in a couple of years. And there are other technologies that are coming down the pipe, like QuantumScape, which also are, are solid state batteries that have a different chemical and, and density profile. The second reason is gas prices are at record highs. So if you're looking at buying an electric vehicle, 
you're still comparing it to a pretty favorable comparison. And part of the reason why, not all these things, but part of the reason for the spike in prices, at least for nickel, is that Russia is part of that supply chain and the impact of the war in Ukraine has affected that as much as it's also affected prices of gasoline. Yeah, you talked about energy density. I, I mean, most people think about energy density from the perspective of weight or size of the pack. But actually, specifically here, you're talking about energy density in respect to how much lithium. So how much energy you can store in a battery per unit lithium that it includes. And so density is not only improving in packs are getting lighter for the same amount of energy, but you can get more energy out of the same amount of lithium in those batteries as well. I think people are pretty split on where this goes next. I think what it's flagging is there's been a kind of and, and this is true for where we are in the markets right now, too. There's been a kind of sense of inevitability. Things go up and to the right. Electric vehicles are going to grow and everything is moving in the right direction. And Elon Musk is like the prophet for all of this. And as things flip in a way that's not expected, it creates the possibility that everything isn't quite 100%. And there might be real obstacles along the way. The raw materials are not the only risk to the supply of electric vehicles. There's fickle consumer sentiments. There's China, which is a massive part uh, of the value chain. And we've seen with lockdowns in Shanghai, tensions in Russia that you can't necessarily anticipate geopolitical uh, instability. So there's risks and complexity. I think there's a sense that America has fought wars over oil and there's geopolitical risk associated with petrol engines. But that doesn't mean with electric vehicles, we don't have these really complex political tie-ins that affect the cost of vehicles and the stability of our transportation going forward. So the, th the third area we go into is more complicated news. Actually, maybe it's not so complicated. It's quite straightforward. It's just how dangerous cars are and how many people are dying. Yeah, versus firearm deaths, right? Scientific American had this chart that came out that showed that firearm deaths among young people and children now peaked above the deaths in young people and children for motor vehicle crashes, which is shocking and obviously is coming in light of the news picking up a lot of the most egregious shootings you've seen in the US. What's even more shocking is this is only for young people, but when you compare homicides from guns to car crash deaths in America, the number of car crash deaths is double that from homicides. So it's not like guns are actually worse than cars in terms of killing people in America today. It's just if you, you know, segment the data in the right way that it looks worse. And it just, I, I think the gun situation feels worse. People feel more bad about that than they do about traffic. Well, we, we say traffic accidents. We don't say like school shooting accident. Like we know that it's an act of hatred and, and, and something disgusting when it happens. Whereas there's something accidental about when people kill other people with cars. It's just that when it's something systemic, like it is in the U.S. in terms of the number of people actually getting killed, it's like more than 40,000 people a year, you have to think a little deeper and be like, is this really okay? And like, how have we gotten used to this? This is just normal. One of the things that really strikes me is when, whenever I go to the airport, people say, fly safe. And the reality is flying is pretty safe. What's really dangerous is getting to the airport because cars just aren't that safe. And yet, for some reason, for whatever reason, we discount the risks of traveling in a car and even more so, much more so being a pedestrian or a cyclist. Yeah, people seem to feel like there's intent. There's clearly intent behind gun violence. 
the thing is, I think that we just have become numb to how we talk about cars and how we think about cars, where there is a lot of intent behind the things that make cars dangerous. People buy cars because they go fast or they're very loud or they can do something or, or they feel better about themselves because the car is just enormous. I think there's been a slow and steady thing that basically cars have become fatter, by which I mean like most Americans now drive SUVs or pickups or crossovers, and those cars are just bigger. And then in combination with that, American roads invite going fast. And as people have driven less during the pandemic and now even still as traffic levels are lower, people can generally go faster. The combination of bigger cars and faster speeds is literally fatal. When you have more momentum, the chance of somebody surviving an accident is much lower when these things happen. And unfortunately, this is an inequality and also like a vulnerable road user problem. The people most vulnerable to it are people not in big SUVs or pickups. I'm just looking yeah, at this and picture I've... of this boy next to a Ford F-150. Like, it's just so shocking, like how big this car is. I remember, Prescott, you posted this tweet storm called the Cospiracy, which is definitely worth checking out as a thread. But I remember that one picture from that, that, that tweet storm of a person in Dallas trying to park their, I think it was a Ford F-150 in the garage. And the caption says, so-and-so from Austin, Texas, can't fit their car into the garage. As many American garages weren't designed in order to have enough space for such oversized vehicles. And you call this the obesity problem in cars. Okay, so what's happening in D.C.? We're not holding our breath that there's going to be a nationwide tax on the size of cars. But basically, you don't pay anything today in America to drive a much bigger car, which incidentally causes more damage to the road and emits you know, more pollutants, etc. But in addition, it creates a disproportionate safety risk. So it does make sense to tax people for the negative externalities that they create. And so in D.C., they're suggesting in the city of D.C., the city council is suggesting a $500 annualized fee for oversized vehicles. We'll see where this goes, but it's an idea that makes a lot of sense. Just because it makes a lot of sense doesn't mean it will get any political traction in America, as you have seen with many other things. So I think there's there are basically two ways in which car ownership still is a bit like guns. The first is that it's very hard to regulate. I, I think it's going to be hard for this kind of regulation to gain traction because similar to gun ownership, people really feel like it is their right to have larger cars. So I think that's one challenge. I think another challenge is even though in some cases when something terrible happens, people I'm sure feel really bad about the fact that there's this enforcement system in place that doesn't really stop these things from happening, whether it's traffic accidents, accidentally driving over a kid, or the kind of school shootings that are happening. But for the most part, people don't focus on those scenarios. They focus on the freedom that you should have the rest of the time as their argument for defending the status quo. And I think these two things make it similar and, and tragic in the same way. You can read this newsletter and get to podcasts that we publish at news.red.blue. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, questions, ideas for things you want to have covered. You can leave feedback on news.red.blue or hit us up on Twitter.